This podcast may contain explicit language and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Friday, December 20th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There was a great debate last night. If I had to ask forgiveness or give a gift to everyone on stage, here's what I'd do. Biden, forgiveness for all those hair-sniffing nicknames I've bestowed on him. No one deserves to be called the Wilmington Whiffer. Sorry. Klobuchar, gift, a fork. Yang, forgiveness for the time I locked him in a room and said he needs to go an hour without talking about universal basic income. Buttigieg, forgiveness for insinuating that South Bend actually had 10,000 fewer residents than Sparks, Nevada or West Covina, California. The numbers are actually 5,000 and 3,000 respectively. Warren Gift, Daily Planner, 48-month version. Steyer, gift, screw it. He should give us gifts. Bernie, gift, soup. That guy definitely likes soup. But the two exchanges I'd like to talk about were between Buttigieg and the two women on the stage, Elizabeth Warren, criticized Pete in vivid terms for hobnobbing with society swells. So the mayor just recently had a fundraiser that was held in a wine cave full of crystals and served $900 a bottle wine. Um, Think about who comes to that. He had promised that every fundraiser he would do would be open door, but this one was closed door. Well, it's a cave, so it's not so much a door as you got to roll a rock in front of the opening, right? It's hard when you're drunk, a $900 a bottle of wine. Buttigieg played the Nick Carraway card. I'm but an observer to this milieu. I'm poor. But he did make one good counter argument. Senator, your presidential campaign right now, as we speak, is funded in part by money you transferred having raised it at those exact same big-ticket fundraisers you now denounce. Did it corrupt you, Senator? Of course not. I think Buttigieg was hitting the hypocrisy angle, but there is another point there, which is that, yes, the Warren campaign got some, though not most of its funding, from transferring money that Warren had raised as a senator. And yes, in fundraising for her Senate run, she did take big donations from donors. But my point about this isn't Warren being inconsistent, it was her being correctly tactical to win her Senate seat. She defeated Scott Brown. Scott Brown had greatly complicated the passage of Obamacare. Warren performed a great service, which she couldn't have done without the money. So I say good. I say good that she raised the money and used it to advance her agenda, which was a good one, and which also, by the way, included diminishing the role of money in politics. It is true that every politician who ever takes money says it won't corrupt me, like Buttigieg did, and that every politician who opposes politicians who take money says, yes, it will. Studies show there's a clear correlation between receiving money and voting for the interests of those who give money, but it is all but impossible to determine cause and effect. Rich wine cave people donate to Buttigieg because he will represent their wine cave interests just as much as Buttigieg will become the champion of the wine cave class simply because they gave him money, or they plied him with alcohol, or they threatened him with stalactites. Now, as far as Amy Klobuchar's critique came down to this. When we were in the last debate, Mayor, uh, you uh, basically mocked uh, the hundred years of experience on the stage. And what do I see on this stage? I see Elizabeth's work starting the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and helping 29 million people. I see the vice president's work in getting uh, $2 billion for his cancer moonshot. I see Senator Sanders' work of 
working to get the veterans bill passed across the aisle. And I see what I've done, uh, which is to negotiate three farm bills and be someone that actually had major provisions put in those bills. So while you can dismiss committee hearings, I think this experience works. Buttigieg's response was, but I was in the Navy. Klobuchar is right. Pete's past jabs at dysfunctional Washington was cynical. Of course, it is easy to see why he would argue that the real energy comes from outside of Washington or even outside the statehouse in Indianapolis and maybe even outside the next two biggest cities in Indiana. I mean, are you going to let some Fort Wayne or Evansville bigwig run roughshod over the presidency? That critique is very much available to Buttigieg. You can see why he'd want to reach for it. The thing is, it's stupid. And Pete doesn't believe it because Pete is smart. Pete is so smart, he realizes this is the right thing for an outsider to say. But still, the way he said it, in the ungracious way, he couldn't even give a smidge of ground to concede the many accomplishments of the people on stage. That was kind of obnoxious. Of course, during a debate, the candidates are not there to smile and make friends. That is what wine caves are for. On the show today, a candidate who wasn't invited onto the stage and may not be invited back to Iowa. Julian Castro rips the Hawkeye State a new one. That'll work out well. But first, if you're between the ages of, say, 35 and 55, the movies of John Hughes, Pretty in Pink, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, they're universal touchstones and also period pieces. They define the kind of adolescence filled with crushes, cliches, and class dynamics specific to the Chicago suburbs. Comedy writer Mike Sachs loves a good parody. He wrote Stinker Let's Loose, a parody of Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood trucker movies of the 70s. Those had a lot less heart than the John Hughes film, so now he's written an audiobook, which was turned into, I guess, the 2019 version of a radio play. Actors Bobby Moynihan and Gillian Jacobs, and even a little bit of Judd Nelson, play parts. In the role of Christina is the actress Ray Seahorn, who you may know as uh, Kim Wexler in Better Call Saul. In this new work, she plays the main character's wild best friend, known for wearing buttons with cheeky sayings and pantomiming inappropriate acts on vegetables in the school cafeteria. It's not great, but it is passable in pink. Up next. The comic and diseased mind of Mike Sachs brings us something new, passable in pink. Mike's been on the show many times before, and he always has a strange different project. He wrote a nonfiction book about uh, killing frogs, apparently. Well, he interviewed these great comic minds, and then he did a very sustained and committed parody of the... The Smokey and the Bandit films, Stinker, Striking Back, Never Breaks Character. So he takes that idea, a genre popular in the 70s, and marries it to a genre popular today, which is the audiobook. Out comes Passable in Pink, which is a John Hughes movie told over five hours through voice actors like Bobby Moynihan and James Adamian and Ray Seahorn, who plays Christine. Hey, Ray. Hi. And with me is that diseased mind of Mike Sachs. Hello, <laughs> Mike. I am. Good. Thank you. Was this a story that needed to be told, Mike? Why? Absolutely not. But it was, um, I wanted to move on from the 70s into the 1980s. Uh-huh. And uh, John Hughes movies meant a lot to me growing up. I had the posters. I, have, I had the scripts. I saw all these movies in the theater. And uh, to me, it seemed like the way to go that the next stage would be a John Hughes type of thing. You know, I've seen the Meatballs type of parodies with Wet Hot American Summer, but I hadn't yeah, seen anything yeah. about John Hughes type movies. And I thought it would be ripe 
for satire. Tell me about the posters, because I understand the rest of it, even just as a passive person. And I think we're all about the same age. You couldn't avoid the John Hughes movies, not that they weren't great, but seeking out the posters. Oh, I had posters for 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, um, all that stuff. So I just loved these films. Hadn't seen them in a while. I have a 10-year-old daughter now. Thought I would revisit them anyway. And it is interesting. You know, these are classic movies have their problems. It's a bit problematic in some areas. My daughter, completely bored by these movies. Really? Looking at them as if they were shot in the 1800s. It had no connection with her. Which the I pace or the yeah. characters? The pacing, me. the characters. She's used to very, very fast pace now. Yes. Uh, Ray, do you have kids? I do. I have um, stepsons that I just call my boys. We're very close to 11 and 12, and they love them. They love particularly Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Pretty in Pink and Breakfast Club. Really? That's the problem. Well, what she does love are the sweeter movies like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. But there's a lot of problematic aspects of these movies, and they really sort of came to the forefront when I was watching it with my daughter. So was Passable and Pink to some extent a means of correcting them? Like, you do have the Long Duck Dong character here named... Also horrible, horrible thing. <laughs> What's his name? His name is Wang Long Love. Now, I saw this originally <laughs> with my best friend who was Taiwanese-American, <laughs> okay. Lee Chang. And we I remember walking out of this movie and him being very quiet. And I asked him, you know, did you like uh. the movie? He goes, I did, except for that one character. And I got to wow. thinking about it, even at that young age. Did, like, he mean, did he mean Long Duck he Dong did. or Jake? I mean, he was called no, Long kidding. Duck Dong in yeah. school. So, I oh, mean, Jesus. you know, Ugh. looking at that character with, with through those eyes. You know, so what right. I wanted to do with this new character was sort of, re, you know, approach it differently and give him the power in, in this movie. There's a twist in the end. So he, he's really the character that gets one over on the other one. And he's not the one being yeah. mocked. Yeah. So that was one way to rehab the character. Then you have your guy Grimer, who I think becomes a few of these John Hughes antiheroes at once. He's a little bit ducky. At one scene, he's a very manic Ferris Bueller. And well, I think he's even a little, and this isn't John Hughes, a little, was it real genius where yeah. Val Kilmer lives Very in the good. walls of a school? I always wanted to do that, a wild child inside of a high school, and this was my opportunity. So this guy, Grimer, he was born to a woman, given birth on prom night 18 years before, 17 years before, grew up within the walls of the high school. And he is sort of a <laughs> um, a character of Ferris Bueller, whom I always didn't like. I always found him to be a sociopath and not as interesting really? as he thought he was. Yeah. That's interesting. And I've heard an analysis of Tom Cruise that yeah, like he's an inch and a half away from sociopath or serial killer. Right. He would be a great serial killer. Yeah. And a lot of these characters, in fact, if you really analyze their actions, dangerous sociopath um, has like a Leopold and Loeb relationship with Cameron. Without There's a, a lot wrong there. There is a lot wrong. I think he's insane. And I don't think he's half as interesting as he thinks he is. I mean, that urban adventure that he puts his friends through, that's a very suburban take on an urban adventure. Right. You go to a ball game. You go to the top of the Sears Tower. You go to a museum. Museum. I always found that kind of tiresome. The characters that I love, which I think should have their own film, are the two guys who work in the car parking lot who steal the car and actually have some fun by driving that um, <laughs> automobile out for the day. Yeah, Charlie Sheen is great in it. He, he plays is, you know, the drugged out uh, guy that Ferris's sister meets. J Jennifer uh, Grey. Jennifer That's Grey right. meets, and Jennifer Grey is great in it. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I don't know. I, I think you were cooler than I was, Mike, because I saw them. Oh, I saw them like <laughs> twelve or thirteen years. Old. No, younger. I was even younger because I remember I had to. It was a big deal to to try to get into PG thirteen, which was a brand new rating at the time, and. 
to me, to me, that was a huge adventure. Yeah, to me, his adventure (laughs) was was huge. But I think I was uh, must have been a little nerdier than you. Okay, what we're doing, how we're free associating, tells me that these movies have a hold on us of our generation. Like we can't stop thinking about them and talking about them. And it goes, you know, to me, it's a little bit about a mythology that this guy created. I mean, he tapped into something that was going on and he made some meaningful art that maybe goes beyond, you know, just the text. Yes. When we we did Stinker Let's Loose together, which was so much fun. <laughs> and then he said he was going to do a John Hughes one. And we were both talking about how, you know, they have some problematic scenes that come up, especially if you watch them with a young person. You're like, oh, crap. No, that's not a good lesson. But at the same time, not only did they have their own mythology and a grip on us, I remember at the time thinking that someone was taking preteens and teens seriously in a way, even though they're in comedies and they clearly have some material that is um, dated and we now know better and probably many people knew better at the time also that was offensive. But I felt like someone understood me. There were characters, you know, Anthony Michael Hall's character in Breakfast Club. There were a lot of things that I felt seen. And my father was an alcoholic and I remember watching Pretty in Pink and was totally arrested that for me, it was the first time I saw it be okay to love somebody, her dad, Harry Dean Stanton, who's brilliant in it, to love them and at the same time accept that they're incredibly flawed, that he's an alcoholic, but he's doing the best he can. And like, there was a lot of really great stuff to see at 10, 11, 12, and 13 as well. That's a great point. I felt that way too, because the movies that came before that, whether the two Corey movies or the 70 Disney movies, I absolutely loved. But what Ray is saying makes a lot of sense because I did feel like I wasn't being talked down to. And that even went, you know, mostly for the music too. This was music I was listening to. This wasn't music a 50-year-old thought I should Oh my God, the soundtracks were amazing. They still are. Absolutely. They still are. So the characters, and he wasn't that old, John. He was mid to low 30s. He really understood that age, I think. And he he wrote these characters with great respect. And you could sense that as a kid. Yeah. Do you think he was putting his finger on class consciousness and class conflict that was really there? Or do you think that, I mean, from, from where I was growing up in Long Island, I didn't I didn't see that at all. I didn't see this division between rich kids and poor kids. And it wasn't even that my high school or middle school was so homogeneous. It wasn't. There could have been that. Mm -hmm. So I thought that that was something, you know, sociological to consider. And I also wonder, maybe by writing about the rich kids and the poor kids and the names or the other side of the tracks, maybe he exacerbated it a little bit in the culture or in other movies. That's an interesting point. I don't know if he exacerbated it. For me, I was watching them from Virginia Beach, and the way he showed, like, making fun of the girl for, like, in Pretty in Pink, that she's wearing all thrift store clothes was much more pronounced than I saw in my school, but it was definitely an element as far as I had moved there from Arizona in Yuma, which Mm -hmm. I hear is now quite built up, but at the time was a school where there was a wealthy ranch mansion next to a shack. It was one neighborhood. There were no divisions. There was one school. People on food stamps riding a horse to school were there with very wealthy people. And we just didn't have that division. You wore anything. You wore it made no, you could have worn, you know, a burlap sack. It made no difference. And I moved to Virginia Beach right around when these movies started coming out. And it was a, a surf town and coastal beach town. Name brands were a thing. I had never heard of any of them. I had never heard of any of the surf <laughs> brands, any of the even Jordash. I had no idea what anybody was talking about. And I was 
immediately made fun of in a way that was so hard for me to wrap my head around. And so it wasn't as pronounced as rich versus poor, but the idea of popularity having something to do with your material possessions and what you wear, that was a big thing for me to see represented on the screen in any fashion. If we saw the visual of you doing this versus what we're hearing and we just compared you mean the me audio, recording would there be a difference? Yeah, Is that what you're saying? Passable okay. in Pink gets greenlit as a movie. You're playing the same character. You're doing the same lines. And what we do is compare the audio. How do you think the audio might be different? That's a good question. I don't think they would be a bigger and smaller performance in the most broad sense of the word for a number of reasons. For one, I actually am physically performing when I do the audio. Very much of it, I, I need to stand and have it in my body. I'm more looking mm-hmm. out for smaller things like realizing the wryness spin that I just put on a line. It takes you a second, a beat to go, oh, that I'm actually only doing that spin visually. That It's not vocally, ah. so I need to shift it to just <laughs> vocal or make sure it's in the vocal. And it's also hard to completely give up being able to control timing when you're doing comedic scenes and dramatic scenes, really. It's like dueling coverage is one of my favorite things on camera because the timing is the timing in real life. I mean, a great editor will always protect you anyway, but that's another thing with audio recordings because you often don't have the other person. The timing's out of your hands. So, Mike, when you wrote Stinker as a book and then it was turned into... It was a novelization, then an audio book. Right. right. And it's a weird thing if people haven't read it. It was meant to be the novelization of a movie that existed. But guess what? The movie didn't really exist. You'll never admit that, but I'm saying it. You're not contradicting (laughs) it. Fine. Well, to this day, my father still thinks it's a real movie. I cannot (laughs) convince him this wasn't a real trucking and CB movie. Okay. So you write that. You write that as the book. It becomes the audio book. You write this as an audio book. So... How does it differ from both of those things, and how is it its own thing? Well, at first, I, it was written as a book. So it was it was meant to be read and enjoyed internally, so a reader would enjoy it. But then we had to turn it outwards, so it had to become an exterior type thing with the uh, audio presentation. Now, this one was written more externally to begin with, but I'm going to turn it into an actual book complete with fake movie stills in the middle, (laughs) cigarette ads and other things in the book um, in about six months or so. But that's an interesting question because you do write differently, whether to be heard orally, audibly, or within, you know, internally. And it's Mm -hmm. a different type of writing. And also, there are some jokes in there that I think only exist in this form. There's one joke where the narrator says, we hear the main character inside her head. And then the narrator says something like, how should I express this out loud? And then we hear her say it out loud (laughs) in the non- EQ'd way that shows that it's not internal. That's an audiobook only joke. Exactly. Right. See, that wouldn't work. Even if you put that in italics in a book, it wouldn't work. That was written specifically to be heard rather yeah. than right. to be read. Yeah. Foley also is a um, source of amusement yeah. that only really is funny when it's radio or audiobooks. Foley shouldn't be noticed when you're watching it on camera, but it can really amuse to make people actually laugh out loud in audio stuff. Yeah, and you can you can hear the artistic, you know, when that was done in the 20s and 30s, 40s. I mean, mm-hmm. they were master technicians, Masters, these guys. Yeah. They made it really work, especially the comedy radio shows. Yeah. So it's fun to be able to listen to this now. It's almost like a resurgence of this sort of art form. 
Mike Sachs is the author of Passable in Pink, audiobook original. Ray Seahorn stars as Christina. Thank you so much, Ray. Take care. Thank you, guys. Okay, thanks, guys. Thank you, Ray, so much. All right, bye-bye. And now the spiel. Julian Castro, trailing badly in the polls in Iowa, has an ad out that unveils his new strategy for staging a comeback in the state that holds a first-in-the-nation caucus to put them on blast for being the state that holds the first in the nation caucus. Telling you the truth at a time when you have a president who won't. It's time for the Democratic Party to change the way that we do our presidential nominating process. And I've said very bluntly that it's time for a state other than Iowa to go first so that our nominating process actually reflects the diversity of our country or of our party. Okay, Hawkeye hostility there. But so far, the visuals have shown Castro's supporters staring at him adoringly from stock photos. But it is unlikely that those gleeful expressions on supporters' faces were won by Castro announcing the words, Iowa stinks. I mean, maybe the people had broken into wide grins in Sioux City and Council Bluffs during the part of the Castro stump speech where he starts talking shit about Nebraska, I can't say. But clearly Castro knew that they had to put an actual Iowan in the ad and they did find one. His name is Hawkeye Iscariot. He's identified on screen actually as Thomas Lecac. And he had this to say. I completely agree with Julian Castro about the Iowa caucus. Julian Castro has the courage to tell it like it is. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm Julian Castro and I approve this message. Well, I don't know that the you're not breaking up with me, I'm breaking up with you message is a political winner. And sure, it's not exactly I'm breaking up with you. It's more like a, yes, your butt does look big in those jeans. They've always looked big in those jeans. And you didn't ask, but your mother has a weird smell about her. Hey, I'm just a truth teller. This amounts to, yeah, we're breaking up. This isn't working. Let me take the mature high ground of putting all your clothes on the lawn and wishing you well. The ad is very interesting. Having this opinion... That's one thing. Expressing this opinion quite publicly, that's another thing. Using the limited dollars that you fundraised to produce and distribute this particular message to this particular state where the underlying premise is, it's Iowa, it's not my own choices that have prevented me from becoming more appealing to voters. That is really the most interesting thing of all. Well, maybe there's something more interesting. What if it worked? Then we might expect the Julian Castro national ad blitz where he goes state to state cutting different versions of this message would start off with something like this. Hi, I'm Julian Castro, and I'm here to tell it to you straight. New Hampshire, you suck. No real identity other than North Massachusetts, South Maine, and East Vermont. We've got 18 miles of coast. What's that, like a 12K? I don't do metrics. I bet neither do you because you're dumb, New Hampshire. And it's not just me saying this. Oh yeah, my name's Angus, and I've lived in New Hampshire all my life, and just because I don't have enough money to leave, I spend it all on scratch-off tickets, not bus fare. Go to hell, New Hampshire! I'm Julian Castro, and I approve this message. On to South Carolina! I'm Julian Castro, and I've got to say, there are two Carolinas in this world, and you guys are in second place. Piss off, Palmetto State! Castro's Rickle-esque barnstorming next takes him to Nevada. Go pound sand, you desert freaks. I'm Julian Castro, and I approve this message. California. Hey, California. Two of the last three governors you elected were a handsome lad, a muscle man, and Gray Davis, who'd actually died three years before taking office. You get the PG&E you deserve. 
Get bent, Golden State. I'm Julian Castro, and I approve this message. Julian Castro next even cuts a commercial for his own home state of Texas. Hi, I'm Julian Castro, a Texan through and through. It was my privilege to serve as mayor of San Antonio, 2009 to 2014. But you know what I can never really get past as I proudly serve San Antonio? Just how much Houston sucked. And Austin and El Paso, more like El Fallo. Oh, oh, oh. And the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Metro, what, are you, what are you, a 14-screen movie theater? That's right, I'm implicating you, entire communities of Irving, Plano, Addison, Frisco. Yeah, Flower Mound, more like Crap Pile. Respectfully, here is now a guy from Flower Mound who agrees with me. Yeah, Julian's right, and he's brave. Everybody hates me already, so who cares? Texas, it needed to be said. I'm going to win this thing. I'm Julian Castro, and I approve this message. Hello, and welcome to Election 2020 coverage. With the biggest day in Democratic politics, Super Tuesday. The results are in. Biden does well in California. Warren wins her home state of Massachusetts. Bernie picks up support in Colorado and Vermont. Buttigieg getting the most delegates out of Minnesota. But the big news of the day was what political scientists thought of as a mathematical impossibility. Former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Julian Castro actually acquired negative delegates. Election officials are unclear if this means he will have to drop out and will owe a balance should he choose to enter the 2024 race, or if it is possible somehow that he is now the leading candidate in the Republican field. Either way, Julian Castro has done the impossible in this fractious country. He is united red state, blue state, urban state, rural state, east and west, large and small, united in one belief. They never want to hear any of the words that precede this brush off. I'm Julian Castro and I approve this message. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader, just producer, enjoyed the debate's question about Afghanistan, but was hoping to hear more about election interference by Gracia, despite the insistence that it was Ukraina. That was alleged by Rodolfo Giuliani. Just producer and Suffolk County resident Christina DeJosa hates the Mastic Shirley region, and they need to know it. The gist. Okay, going to do a little Karnak bit here. Okay, next envelope. $900 wine cave. $900 wine cave. $900 wine cave. What is the bill presented by Mike's HVAC guy? And what does Mike do about it? $900 wine cave. Karnak, we need to bring that back. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.